Hey, welcome to What Not the Podcast. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Here's some questions we're answering today. Political questions about the Lutherans and Catholics working together? A history of Lutheran confirmation and early communion? How does Lutheran theology not create willful sinners? Question about original sin and baptism? What's the Lutheran view of unconditional love? A question regarding the interpretation of Psalm 118? And someone who wants to know, why become a Lutheran? That's a lot of great questions, guys. We'll take a shot at all of them. Here we go. What not? The podcast. First, a little devotion. How about this for Romans 8, 1? There is now, boy, you wouldn't believe this unless you could see it written in the Word of God. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's no condemnation left. Jesus suffered it all on the cross. That means every bit of condemnation that was due you because of your sin and due me because of mine, there's nothing left. Jesus has drunk the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs. And he's done it all for us so that life and salvation and hope and peace would be ours in him. God be praised. God be praised. All right, let's take a look at these, some of these questions. GL has a question about Lutherans and Catholics being pro-life and not working together. He talks about how the Catholic Church uh, really, in the media, is presented as the leader on the abortion issue. How the Missouri Synod is also pro-life, but it doesn't seem like they work together. Why not? Does the Catholic Church have a better PR department, writes LG? Is there mutual rejections of each other? Where Catholics still see Luther as a heretic, why don't they work together? A uh, great question. I don't know the answer. There's always been an agreement on external things. So where we could work together with other people of common cause and uh, good and right concerns on these things, we've always tried to work together. And so uh, the Lutheran Church, for example, is happy to work with anyone on the pro-life issue. There's a group of pro-life atheists, and we would stand next to them and, and work on these things. Uh, we think that... Um, fellowship, theological fellowship, as found in its fullness when we come together at the Lord's Supper, uh, does not preclude fellowship in things like family or society or good cause with other good people. So we want to work together uh, to end the blight of abortion and to support life and upright life amongst us as best we can. It's true that the Catholic Church, of all the things that they don't like, Lutherans are right there at the top as indicated by the order of Catholic trolls that uh, hangs around the comments on my YouTube page. I love those guys, but I'll admit that they're frustrating at times. But here's, an, here's a very interesting historical phenomenon that I've been curious about for a long time. Because when I look at it, it seems to me like the really the chief partner that confessional Lutherans have in speaking of living in an ordered world is the Roman Catholic Church. They are standing up strongly for life in the womb. They're standing up strong, at least the theologians are. The politicians and the members of the church are doing miserably at that. I mean, you look, you elect a Roman Catholic president and have Roman Catholics in charge of the Congress in the United States, and they're, they're all crazy pro-abortion. So, so that's a big internal fight that the Catholic Church needs to have and have a little bit more robustly. But theologically, on paper anyways, the Roman Catholic Church is for... Uh, babies in the womb. It's for 
marriage of a man and a woman committed to one another for life and so forth. The irony is that when Martin Luther, back in 1528 or whatever, wrote the large catechism on how in the world are we going to order this world now that the Catholic Church has abandoned us and now that the the structures that the Catholic Church had propped up to order society, like the monasteries and so forth, now that these are fallen, how are we going to order the world? Is that, as Luther wrote the large catechism, the, the Catholics were the chief opponent to God's ordering of the world, and now there are only uh, partners in it. So it shows how far the rest of the world has gone when it comes to considering this, um, this world an ordered place by God the Father who created us and still sustains it. But anyway, the point is we can cooperate on things like abortion and marriage and political conversations and moral conversations, ethical conversations, fights or arguments about what's good and true, uh, while we still continue to fight about the theology. And I think this is a subtle but very important thing for, um, for Christians to meditate on. When I'm thinking about issues like marriage, I should find common cause with all Christians. But then when we talk about, say, infant baptism, I, I join in with the Orthodox and the Catholics in arguing against the Baptists. But then when I talk about the authority of the Church or Sola Scriptura, I join with the Baptists to fight against the Catholics. So in one moment I might be fighting against someone, and the next moment I might be fighting with someone, depending on what the argument is and where the battle lines are. So, LG, great question. Hope that's helpful. Beth asks, Good evening. I'm curious of the history of the Lutheran Confirmation. I've heard some LCMS congregations allow communion prior to confirmation. Is this in line with closed communion? What are your thoughts on that? Thanks, Beth. Uh, I think when it comes to confirmation, the first thing we should recognize is that it's not in the Bible. We just made it up. But it's, it's not a bad custom because there is a sense in which a person needs to be able to examine themselves before they come to the Lord's Supper per the instructions of St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and the warning that's given there, and the fact that coming to the Lord's Supper is making a public confession. When to do that, how to do that, what that instruction consists of, that's where we're just doing our best to figure out how to do it. The Lord hasn't given us a dominical mandate about what that should be. So I think as long as we recognize that the custom of confirmation is just that, is a custom, and not something that's biblically required. It's just preparation, basically, for the receiving of the Lord's body and blood and the promise of forgiveness in the supper and also the public confession that accompanies that. Then we are free to do our best. So early uh, communion certainly wouldn't conflict with closed communion. In fact, I think that most of the congregations that I know that are doing early communion, separate from confirmation, it's really sort of a confirmation one and then confirmation two, but those that are doing it seem to be pretty faithful on their practice of closed communion. That's why they're that's why they're doing it. So, well, the short answer, but I hope it's helpful. There's not much biblical ground. We just are trying to use our wisdom and trying to figure out how to do it best. Maybe, maybe a word about this, by the way, the Catechism, which is the text that we use, we want to recognize as a very old text. It's basically the Ten Commandments, Creed, and Lord's Prayer are understood to be the building blocks of any Christian education or theological education. So Luther took those things, and he wrote his small catechism, but this was the teaching method that went way back before Luther as well. And so we want to be always teaching those things. So if we want to have early communion, we want to be covering those things. What is the Lord's Supper? And we want to know the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, those are kind of the very basics of what we want to know to have a Christian 
mind or to, to know Christian things. So again, Beth, great question. God's peace be with you. Cindy, who calls herself an addicted Catholic, has this great series of questions. I just watched your video about the failure of American Christianity. As an addicted Catholic, trying to go back to my Lutheran roots, I struggled with Phariseeism. If we are not to be obedient and holy, I have to throw out half the Bible. What do we do with all the works uh, scriptures? I know my salvation is on Christ alone. It's after salvation that the scriptures tell me to work, not to keep my salvation, but to place his word in my heart and produce the fruit he speaks of. I don't know how Lutheran theology doesn't create willful sinners. I cannot accept the Catholic gospel. If you're good enough, you may get to heaven. Though I cannot accept being controlled by pietism, I have to be holy, serving, making Jesus my Lord. If I'm not working, I'm watching TV. I don't get it. Can you help me? An addicted Catholic, Cindy. Well, Cindy, great question. Thank you, and God's peace be with you as you wrestle through this. Uh, What if we consider this in light of the parable of the two sons? Sometimes we call it the parable of the prodigal son, but we want to remember that that guy had a brother. And if we look in that parable, we see that there are three distinct errors that we always have to be aware of. There is the error of hedonism. And this is the first error that the younger brother falls into. He asks for the inheritance from the father, and he goes off and he lives in riotous living, orgies and just doing whatever he wants. He wastes his father's money. This is this throwing caution to the wind, doing whatever feels right, serving your flesh, which is always a slavery. The devil always tells us that that's what true freedom is, and the devil has really won the argument in our day by telling our culture that if you do what you want, you're free, and if anyone tries to stop you, then they're trying to manipulate you or coerce you or to to hinder you, enslave you. That's just hedonism, and that's so obviously wrong that even the philosophers could recognize that, almost all of them. So, so that's the first danger, and of course the scriptures uh, warn us of hedonism, of following the flesh, of living for ourselves, of doing whatever we want. That kind of life is a, is a shallow life, an empty, a cold life. Um, it's a grass fire of a life, you know, it just it burns and, is, and it leaves you charred over. And that's where we find this younger brother, a plague. Uh, I mean, he spends all the money, and then a famine comes to the land, and now he, just to eat, has to go and become the slave of a foreigner, and he has him feeding the pigs. Can you imagine for a Jewish boy feeding the pigs? And uh, he, he desires to eat the pods that the pigs are eating, the slop. And Jesus says that he came to himself and realized that his father's servants had it so much better than he did, So he comes up with a plot. He says, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I'm not worthy worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired hands. He doesn't even use the word slave, doulos, in the Greek, um, because that would be part of the father's house. He he says, I'm going to be a, a hired worker. I'm not even going to live on the estate. I'm just going to come over, and I'm going to work, and you can pay me, and And that'll be the arrangement that's there. I'm not worthy to be called your son. So he goes back home, and as he's a long way off, the father sees him and runs to him and embraces him. And this son begins his little speech, I'm not worthy to be called your son, and he cuts him off. No more of that. And he puts the sandals on him and the ring on his fingers and the robe around him, and he kills the fatted calf. And he says, let us rejoice for my son who was lost is found. 
So this is the second error. That's the error of despair. The error of, this is the error that happens when we realize our sin and, and don't yet realize God's grace. And that's the sin of despair. And we think that we're unworthy to be part of God's family. We think that maybe we can do enough works that God would be happy with us. It's a great danger. It's a great theological danger. We see it in so much of American Christianity, really a Christianity across the board, that they try to that that Christianity is like the son walking back to the father's house saying, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. I'm going to do these works and serve you, and then maybe you'll approve of me. But the father won't have it. The Lord wants sons, not slaves. And so this is the gospel of God's grace. He comes to us and rescues us and delivers us with his kindness and mercy and love. It's just phenomenal. There's a third danger. The danger is pride. And this is the really the reason why Jesus is telling the parable. Remember, there was those who saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, and they despised him for it. The Pharisees, who thought they were too good for these sinners, thought that they were good in and amongst themselves. And Jesus is telling these three parables in Luke 15 to, to set this whole situation up so that they can see themselves and the older son pouting in the field. So he tells the parable of the lost uh, sheep, that one who wanders off and the shepherd goes and finds him and, and rejoices, and the one lost coin, the widow sweeps the house until she finds it, and then the lost son who comes back. And then what happens when everyone else is rejoicing over this dead and now alive son is that the older brother is out in the field. He says, what's all this noise? And they tell him, and he's angry. And this is the danger of theological pride or just of pride. He, the father goes out to him astonishingly. And he says, all these years I slaved for you. I did everything that you commanded me. And you never gave me a goat to make merry with my friends. In other words, the older son also thought of himself as a slave of the father, and yet as a perfect and obedient slave who had not been given everything that he deserved. And this is the danger of Phariseeism, the danger of pietism, the danger of thinking that we have, by our own keeping God's commands, somehow earned or deserved his love. Now, the father deals very tenderly with this older son, and he says to him the same thing. He says, son, you are always with me. I am always with you. Everything I have is yours. It was right for us to make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive. So the the theological danger of pride in our own good works and obedience is a very tricky, very delicate, but very important thing to get after. It was really the burden of the argument of the Lutheran Reformation to get after that careful distinction that good works, even though they are good, are also dangerous because we are tempted in so many different ways to trust in them for our salvation and therefore lose the grace of God. And so uh, we can recognize all three of these dangers, the danger of hedonism, the danger of sin and despair, and the danger of pride in our good works. 
And the solution to all of them is to rejoice in God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Savior of sinners. To know that, the, that God does not want slaves but sons and that we are part of his family. That's the hope and the confidence that the Lord Jesus gives to us. So sometimes we worry about despair. Sometimes we worry about pride. Sometimes we worry about our sin. But all the time, the solution is the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us that we might live in him. So Cindy, I hope that helps. And I hope that helps put the theological conversation and the various temptations in, in a biblical place. Uh, let me know what you think. And thanks again for the question uh, from Cindy, the addicted Catholic. A JR asks about original sin and baptism. I believe the great gifts that God has attached to baptism, forgiveness, regeneration, adoption, etc. I understand the saint sinner distinction. I'm quite confused about what God does through baptism to original sin. We confess that baptism forgives sins, washes away, washes them away, praise be to God. But how do we speak faithfully about original sin and baptism? Uh, hey, JR, thank you. This is a marvelous question, and I really appreciate it uh, as well. So Pastor Wolfmuller here, checking in from Costco, doing some Christmas shopping and answering theology questions. I, I think it's helpful to distinguish between original sin and original guilt. So original sin covers a large amount of things, including the guiltiness that we, the sinner has as we stand before God. In other words, we are sinners and therefore deserve God's wrath and both temporal and eternal punishment, as we often confess. But then there's also the uh, consequences of original sin, that we have a corrupt will, corrupt desires, corrupt reason, that uh, that original sin has um, twisted us toward ourself, away from God, towards things that are wicked. And we confess that baptism takes away original guilt. That is, the guilt that we have as we stand before God as sinners, and the wrath that we should get because uh, we are sinners. Uh, uh, baptism also introduces to us the new nature, the new Adam, the spirit which fights against our flesh and the inward and away from God bent of our, uh, of our sin nature that we are born with. And so while baptism takes away original guilt, it does not completely take away the result of original sin because we are still in the flesh. The Lord will end that when we die. But the Lord, by baptism, introduces the Holy Spirit and the new nature, the new Adam, so that we engage now in a daily fight of repentance and faith as we fight against our, as we fight against our original nature, our sinful fallen nature, uh, to love and serve God. So I hope that helps uh, clarify uh, that. If you have more questions, please let us know. And thanks again for this really helpful question. Heather writes, Hi, what is the Lutheran view on unconditional love? I heard that it became more popular as the world became more secular. I would love to hear more about this. Thanks, Heather. Great question. I don't know anything about the phrase becoming more popular as the world becomes more secular. I think when most people use that phrase, unconditional love, what they're saying is that, hey, I'm going to love you no matter what. They want people to feel secure in the love that they're giving. So parents might say, I love you no matter what. You, you cannot mess things up so bad that I stop loving you. Um, and, and so that we want to have that confidence that the, the peoples that we love will, in fact, love us. But at some point, we recognize that love is 
conditional. I mean, you have to be, for example, alive to love somebody, and they have to be alive too. And there are things that people could do that would really make them very difficult to love. We could say that at least. But what about the love of God? Is the love of God conditional or is it unconditional? And I think that's a fantastic question. And I think the answer is it depends on what you're talking about. Is the love of God conditioned on us and the things that we do or don't do? Is it conditioned on us keeping God's law or doing everything right? Well, oh boy, if it was conditioned on that, none of us would be loved by God. But, and this is a huge point that cannot be overemphasized, the love of God is conditional, and it is it is based on the condition of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is his death and resurrection that makes us lovable, that wins the love of God for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so the love of God comes to us in this death and resurrection, and not apart from it. Apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no love from God. It's only wrath and anger, law, and um, rebuke, and so forth and so on. So we want to rejoice that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that he who gave his son for us, shall he not also together with him also give us every good thing? That's Romans 8. And that means that if we have air to breathe, or if we have food to eat, or if we have a home, or if we have a a minute of peace and rest in this life, it's because Jesus died for us to forgive our sins. So God has a very conditional love for us, and the condition is the death of Jesus on the cross. So God be praised for that. Brandon asks a question about Psalm 118. Here's this cool. Uh, messenger, Pastor Brian, at your service, Brandon. The other day I was in Bible study focusing on Psalm 118, great Psalm. One of the things I pointed out is that it could be read with either a pre-Messianic mindset where God delivered Israel from Egypt and their enemies, or you could read it in a post-Messianic mindset where Christ has delivered our souls from eternal damnation. I especially focused on verse 17. Uh, that, by the way, says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. What a verse. In one sense, God sustains our physical lives, but he also now sustains our spirits. One of the others, I think in the Bible study, approached me after and warned me of Gnosticism, that I was separating the physical from the spiritual. My question for you was, was their concern a valid one, or am I safe within the realms of the gospel with my interpretation? Thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Great question. Glad to see you digging into Psalm 118, the middle chapter of the Bible, by the way. And I think this verse 22, let me see over here. Yeah, this verse 22, I think, is the second most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I think that's, I think that's Jesus' favorite psalm verse, and he is that stone that the builders rejected, which has become the chief corner. He Also, Psalm 118 is where we get the Hosanna that the children were singing and the disciples as Jesus was riding in to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Great psalm. Uh, I think, Brandon, the person that was talking to you does have a valid concern because Gnosticism is always a valid concern. And one of the dangers that we 
so, so here, let me make it get simplified by taking it to another text. There'll be a thing where we'll read a gospel text where Jesus heals the blind man, and and we say Jesus also heals us from spiritual blindness. Or we see Jesus raising a man from the dead, and we say Jesus also raises us from spiritual death. And we jump right over the physical miracle straight to the spiritual miracle. That's one danger, as if it had nothing to do with the resurrection and Jesus' triumph over creation and the world and death. There's another danger, which is to say, no, Jesus just healed that particular blind man has nothing to do with me. I mean, the reason why the Holy Spirit has it written down is so we can see that the miracles, in fact, are also signs and pointing us to truths so that Jesus does open our eyes so that we might see. In fact, that's probably like when Jesus is healing the blind man and John, that's the whole point that the Pharisees who have great eyesight, 2020, no doubt, they couldn't see what was right in front of them, the promised Messiah. And so the Lord does bless us with daily bread and with the forgiveness of sins. When it comes to the reading the Psalms, remember that they're, they are when they look back on the Lord's deliverance, they're looking back on the Exodus and looking forward to the to the being delivered out of exile and being brought back into the land, which is ultimately fulfilled at Pentecost, and the the gifts that the Lord Jesus gives in the New Testament, which is especially deliverance from sin, death, and the power of the devil. So we always want to let the Old Testament sit in its context in the old in the Old Testament. But we also want to realize that the Lord is dealing with his Old Testament people as Christians, just like he deals with us. And it's not like the Old Testament people just needed to be delivered from Pharaoh, but us New Testament people need to be delivered from the devil. No, the Old Testament people needed to be delivered from the devil also. And so they were receiving these texts as good news of the Messiah who was going to come and would become the chief cornerstone of the Lord's new temple in which the true worship of God and eternal life was going to be found. And so um, so while we want to look out for separating the physical and the spiritual too far from each other, we also want to know that the Holy Spirit is dealing with his Old Testament and New Testament people all the way through with the same chief promise. Remember Acts chapter 10, that all the prophets preached that the forgiveness of sins would come in the name of Jesus. So that's what we're looking for in every passage of Scripture. So, Brandon, hope that helps. Thanks so much for the question. Great one. Joseph writes, I've been in and out of the Christian church since I was 13 years old. I have researched different denominations to see what they believe. I've looked into the Lutheran church, but I'm confused. Everyone says they have the truth, but they often call other denominations heretics. Why should I consider becoming a Lutheran? And if I do, what should I read that explains Lutheran theology? Thanks, Joseph. Great question. Uh, This is an especially good question because so many people are confused about all the different denominations and all the different choices out there, it's almost overwhelming. Where do you even start? So let's start in this way. We confess that the Bible is God's word. So we want to look for a church that confesses the same thing. I mean, if the Bible's not God's word, then how do you know what's true and what's not to begin with anyway? So you got to have some sort of standard. So the, the gift that the Lord has given us is the gift of the prophets and the apostles, and we rejoice in that truth. God be praised for that. So then, uh, if we, if that's the case, the Bible's God's Word, then we start looking to see what the Bible says. So we should know that these questions should drive us back to the Scriptures. And if, if as you're searching for the 
church to go to, you're not opening the Bible and reading through the Bible to see what it says, then something's wrong there. These questions should lead us back to the Scriptures. I think the best way to get after these questions, uh, the easiest way perhaps, is to look at baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those are two places where the differences between the denominations are very clear, and then you can look at what the Bible says and sort it out. And here's, I think, what the Lutheran Church has going for it, one of the things that it has going for it, is it just takes these things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, very simply according to the words that are there. So, for example, Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Uh, Paul says, stand up and have your sins be baptized, have your sins washed away. Uh, Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And so Lutherans say, hey, baptism forgives sins. One of the only churches that in fact says that so plainly, a lot of folks will make baptism the um, first act of obedience, or it, in other words, it doesn't bring the grace of justification. Uh, the other place is to look at the Lord's Supper where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, a lot of churches will say, well, that symbolizes or it's a spiritual presence. The Lutherans will look at it and say, hey, it is the body and blood of Jesus, and it's there for the forgiveness of sins. God be praised for that. It's also good to look at what the different churches teach about uh, original sin, about Jesus, and about salvation, and what that means for us as well. And so as you look through the different churches and what they teach on those different things, um, hopefully it becomes clear who has the Scripture going for them and, and who doesn't. That's the thing that we want to be convinced on, is the Scriptures themselves. So uh, that, uh, Joseph, is what I would commend you toward as you search these things out. What book to look to for what the Lutherans believe? You, I think small catechism is great. Um, if you're looking for something more, a little bit more theological, there's a little book called Outlines of Doctrinal Theology by A.L. Grabner, and you can find that at wolfmuller.co to download for free if you go on books and um, around the word classic reprints. You can find that to download for there. That's a really helpful book as well. Thanks so much, Joseph, for that question. I hope that helps. If it doesn't, you know, send me another note and let's keep pressing forward on that. Let's end with something beautiful, Savior of the Nations Come, this great ancient Advent Christmas hymn by St. Ambrose, translated into German by Martin Luther and then into English by William Reynolds. Savior of the Nations Come, Virgin Son, make here thy home. Marvel now, O heaven and earth, that the Lord chose such a birth. Not by human flesh and blood, By the Spirit of our God was the Word made flesh, woman's offspring, pure and fresh. Wondrous birth, O wondrous child of the virgin undefiled, though by all the world disowned, still to be in heaven enthroned. From the Father forth he came and returneth to the same, captive, leading death and hell, high the song of triumph swell. Thou, the Father's only Son, hast o'er sin the victory won. Boundless shall thy kingdom be. When shall we its glory see? Brightly doth thy manger shine. Glorious is its light divine. Let not sin or cloud this light. Ever be our faith thus bright. Praise to God, the Father, sing. Praise to God, the Son, our King. Praise to God, the Spirit, be.
ever and eternally. Amen. Thank you for listening to What Not the Podcast. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. It's been a joy to be with you again today. Hope it was fun for you as well. Please send those questions in, although I'm only about 50,000 questions behind, but keep them coming. We'll try to keep them answering. Thinking about a youth daily pod... Oh, boy, I shouldn't have told you that, but just trying to imagine what it might be like to have a podcast for kids driving to school. Man, I think that'd be a lot of fun. If you got ideas about that, let me know. Wednesday Whatnot is the free weekly Whatnot email that I send out. It's got links and stuff I'm looking at, announcements and all those sorts of things. You can find that at wolfmuller.co slash Wednesday or WWN or any of those spots. It's on the sidebar and all those pages. Sign up for that. That's a lot of fun. And uh, if there's something helpful here, uh, you can share this as well with friends or family. Let them know what you think about it and so forth. That'd be great. Um, I think that's all. Thanks again for being part of the fun. I hope the Lord would bless and keep you, that this Christmas season would be one of, of joy in the Lord's gifts and longing for all the gifts to come. May God grant it for Christ's sake. Take care.